Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. On this new episode of Let's Talk AI, super happy to be here today. Today we're going to talk about amazing subjects, and we are with Dipankar Masumdar. Dipankar, how are you doing? Hey Thomas, I'm good. How are you? Very, very good. I'm super happy for this episode. Um, been looking forward to speaking with you. You've been Me on yeah. on different uh, uh, conventions doing speaks. Um, right. So how 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 are you doing, and how how have you been doing lately? Good. It's been like conference season, so I've been like traveling around, like um, and speaking about the things I like. Um, it's super fun, but also it's tiring at times. But I'm back home now, so uh, it's exciting to uh, you know just to be sitting at your desk and working on and focusing on something. Uh, yeah. I see. I see. So for the people who are listening who might not know you, um, could you do a, a brief description of yourself, maybe professionally and personally? Yeah, so uh, my name is Dipankar and I'm currently uh, a data engineering advocate here at Dremio. Uh, currently, I focus on uh, helping engineering teams uh, build reliable and scalable data platforms uh, using pretty much uh, open source solutions like Apache Iceberg, uh, Apache Arrow. We are going to talk a bit more about it today uh, and platforms like Dremio. Uh, I'm also a very much community focused person, so I really love contributing and uh, you know, learning from the data community. Um, personally, I'm super interested in, uh, you know, a couple of things like writing, listening to music and stuff. Uh, so I devote a considerable amount of time to going to concerts and stuff. Uh, but yeah, uh, and, and I'm from Toronto, Canada. Awesome. Uh, that's wonderful. And you've mentioned a few, a few topics, uh, a few yeah. hints of what we're going to, to talk about today. Um, so maybe as a first step, I think it would be very interesting before asking you a bit about your background, you have a very interesting background. Um, could you share with us what are your goals today and what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And uh, to be honest, I haven't laid it out all yet, but I think, um, I mean, for me, one of the driving aspects for me is that I'm really passionate about like data and tech. And now that I have spent close to like a decade in this particular industry, uh, I want to be able to give back to the community and help reduce those friction in terms of uh, implementing technical solutions or, you know, getting started with something uh, or the career wise. Uh, and this encompasses the work that I kind of do uh, within my role as well. Uh, so I focus a lot on critical open source projects like I was talking about uh, and that the you know community has been trying to implement it and adopt it. And my motive is to be able to help them out and do that with as little friction as possible. Right. Because. Uh, when you're getting started with something, it can be pretty uh, daunting at first. So that's my whole goal, and be able to explain critical, you know, and con- you know, tech, you know, conceptual, um, technical concepts in a more easier way. Be something that I kind of constantly, you know, focus about. Uh, another thing is that uh, I kind of think about bridging the gap between academia and industry, specifically for newcomers. I spend like two years of my time uh, in between my career uh, going to academics, like doing my masters in computer science. Uh, and now there is, and I, now I'm back to the industry again. 
So I understand there is some kind of a bridge in between. Uh, and I want to like make sure, you know, people who are getting started in this industry, they, uh, you know, have a pretty, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, kind of a smooth uh, journey uh, because I personally have started with kind of a, like a couple of rough bumps in my you know, career. So I hope I can make that journey a bit simpler. Uh, and that's my kind of objective right now. So very interesting, reducing fric- uh, reducing frictions, yeah. and yeah. Um, and the gap between uh, academic and, and industry are uh, are very two interesting topics that we'll get back. Uh, you mentioned yeah. and you mentioned the you from from the university then masters. Uh, could you make a, a retrospective of what you've been doing since the university and and how your career path took different steps? Um, very in a very and common and interesting way. Yeah, so I actually started uh, my career as like a software engineer uh, right after I completed my bachelor's in computer science. Uh, uh, and then like, it, this was back in 2013, actually. Uh, so then with the, you know, I spent considerable like two and a half years like working as a software engineer uh, and trying to, you know, push code as much as I can. Uh, it was just my beginning of my career. So you wanna, I really wanted to like write as much as much of code as possible. Uh, and then, like, you know, in 2016, I guess, uh, that was the rise of the big data industry and with Hadoop and, you know, everything around it. Yeah. So I was also personally motivated by data uh, because I always studied a couple of subjects in my bachelor's as well. And I was like, okay, this is like, looks like an interesting field. So if I have an opportunity, why not try to get into that particular field? Right. Uh, so I ended up doing like uh, getting started with a big data engineering role. Uh, but... Uh, ultimately, I switched my role to uh, data visualization from there uh, because I basically saw a couple of teams working on different different type of visualization solution and how you can derive insights from visualizations and you know help your stakeholders uh, make decisions from those visualization. Right. So I think I was super driven by that. I although at that point of time I had very less knowledge around the technological aspects of it. Uh, for example, I was working with a couple of uh, solutions like Tableau and Click. Uh, and then I was like doing customized visualization solution using things like D3 JavaScript, which is completely different. Uh, you know, I didn't have the JavaScript background, uh, but it was a fun learning experience. The learning curve was a bit tough, uh, but I was able to execute it. So that's the best part. Uh, and from there, I worked on things like machine learning and, you know, building data platforms. Um, and then I was like, okay, I knew a bit of visualizations and, you know, I was uh, getting a touch of the data industry in general. Uh, and I was getting a sense of where the data industry was moving as well. So I was like, I was applying machine learning algorithms, but I didn't have much idea on, you know, what goes around with those algorithms. How can I tune it to make it better, right? So you need a more better understanding around that. So at that point of time, uh, it was back in 2019 when I paused my in the, you know industry career for a while. And I thought I should do some research around it. So I found out a perfect uh, master's in computer science thesis-based program uh, here in Canada. And I ended up doing my master's in computer science there. And I focused, my research area was on machine learning model explainability. That's a, you know, area within itself. Uh, my whole goal was how can I use my background, like that is my visualization background, to basically explain different kind of ensemble models, like random forest model. Uh, and that kind of gave me the edge. I was able to like publish a paper. And, you know, it was really an interesting scope for me, like coming from the industrial world and seeing uh, how things work in academia as well. Uh, and then, you know, I thought that, okay, over these years, I have been always been involved with the community in some way or other, you know, either like writing about what I'm doing or, you know, talking about it in LinkedIn and Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I was like, why can I get a role that has more ability and scope to exercise all of these things, uh, but at the same time, be able to 
leverage my background, right, which is my research background, uh, my ability to write things and, you know, educate people and those kind of things. So that's when I heard about the kind of the developer advocacy or the kind of data advocacy role. Uh, it's a pretty new role in the world of data, to be honest. Uh, but that kind of bring brought everything together for me. And here I am now almost like close to three years in this particular role now. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, very interesting how right how you've uh, took the decision to to evolve in um, one big field but like very try and, and the fact that you went for like from okay i want to understand this deeper so i'll do more yeah. research and i'll do a master um right. uh, and you're now writing a book uh could I you am. tell <laughs> so could you tell a, a bit of an introduction about the book you're writing yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this is the first, this is the first book I'm co-authoring actually with a couple of my colleagues here in Revio. Um, it's been an exciting journey, as you can imagine. Uh, I didn't have any experience writing a book. Uh, so it's been a lot at times, but also it's very exciting. Uh, so I think the, the, the happiness that you get from like putting something out in such a form is obviously greater than like, you know, all those effort that you put behind. So yeah, this book is about a technology called Apache Iceberg that I kind of focus on. Um, it's basically, uh, and I can talk a bit more about what Apache Iceberg later is, but in, in general, you know, it's basically, uh, you know, a new architectural paradigm called lake house architecture. Uh, and basically it brings the best of a data warehouse and a data lake. Uh, and the whole idea is to be able to uh, implement such a lake house uh, architecture using a technology like Apache Iceberg. So Apache mm. Iceberg is open source, it's Apache license. Uh, it came out of Netflix data engineering team, uh, and now it's out there. Every you know major kind of analytical organization, uh, you know companies like Google, and you know even data warehousing vendors like Snowflake, and they have been trying to adopt Iceberg now. Uh, the race is kind of huge for table formats now, as you can imagine. Probably have been hearing uh, after the Snowflake and Databricks conference as well. Uh, but I guess the momentum is huge, I would say, and you know everyone uh, because it's such an open technology, and that makes your data. And I'm going to talk a bit more about open data architecture later as well. But I think the whole point is that since your data is kind of in an open data architecture, so you're not limited to one particular set of compute, whether it's your BI, whether it's your machine learning or streaming, whatever it is. Uh, and the book is going to be like the first book on Iceberg. So the whole idea is that we have been like we have been obviously like contributing a lot to Iceberg, like whether it's code, uh, we have our open source engineering team who contributes to the code. Uh, we write a lot of blogs and, you know, uh, all this kind of like applied articles, like how we can uh, take advantage of Iceberg and do certain things like, you know, uh, whether it's uh, CDC, whether it's uh, large scale implementation of like solutions like streaming, uh, like using Apache Flink and those kind of things. So the whole, the book is going to be a detailed one. It's going to be hands-on as well. It's not just theoretical concepts. We're going to have code. Uh, we're going to have a GitHub repository around the, uh, the book as well. So I hope, uh, you know, this can be a great starting point for people who are experienced from uh, that kind of background as well. That's awesome. Um, I would like to ask you further about um, yeah. Apache Iceberg. So to put a little bit of context, we see Hadoop what we call yeah. Hadoop, the first, uh, the first big piece, let's say, that started right. all of this in, two, in, in, in 2009. 
right. and it started by the uh, Yao team. Uh, I don't have the, the leader of the team uh, in mind. Yeah. But, uh, basically, yeah. the three pieces were uh, HDFS, Yarn, and MapReduce, correct? Right. So HDFS. Right. Um, I recommend that if, if you want to look into it, check uh, yes. Hadoop and you'll have all the story, all the background. You have many, many documentation out there. But this is like the first piece of where we started talking about big data. And then right. near MapReduce, you could uh, you, you rapidly saw um, Spark. And this is something we, we discussed uh, with Andy Petrella on, on, a, on a previous episode. So I really recommend you to check this out. And we talked about um, data right. observability, which is a very yeah. fascinating topics and uh, what lays right. ahead. Uh, so now that we put a little bit of context, throwing a few names uh, for, for those who are listening, let us know if you're familiar with those or not. Um, so so based on this very simple, you mentioned Flink, Flink streaming, yeah. um, so different, different streaming platforms. And there are a lot of pieces open source that can go into an, an architecture, uh, Adobe architecture. Um, now, could you explain us maybe how, where Apache Iceberg fits into that yeah. and why it's going to play a big role in the, in the upcoming years? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I, I gave a kind of a hint in the previous question as well, but I'm, uh, so, so right to your question, like where it fits in. So with the evolution of Hadoop and like the, so for me, like Hadoop file system is the data lake uh, in the earlier world, like it's an on-premise data lake. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where you're all your like process files after running a MapReduce algorithm before. Now you don't have to worry about MapReduce algorithms. You can just run a Spark job and you're going to process those files and land it in that particular file system. So now with, you know, we have evolved from that kind of Hadoop era to like uh, cloud object storage, right? Amazon S3, uh, ADLS, Google Cloud yes. Storage, all the major vendors, right? So now they are the cloud data lakes. And now the benefit of those cloud data lakes is that you don't have to really worry about, uh, you know, scalability, right? You can mm -hmm. either increase as, you, as much as you want. You can provision as much as you want from these cloud vendors. And the best part is they are not even costly. They are cheaper. So, you know, that's the best part. So organizations now can, you know, uh, they are not limited to just a warehouse where they can like, where they pay money to like store data in a particular warehouse storage. So now they can infinitely scale their data as they want in that these different cloud data lakes, uh, right? Yes. With S3 and Hadoop and everything. Yes. And that's where uh, the file formats, like I said, you know, those the different parquet files or different, you know, JSON or CSV, whatever it is, those files, they land up in those uh, data lakes, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what you have is those files sitting in those data lakes, right? Yes. Yes. However, for compute engines, like for any kind of compute engine like Spark or Trino, Dremio or whatever it is, to work on that file system, uh, you need to be able to like, you know, do things like schema evolution. You know, how, what if you change a particular schema of a particular, you know, uh, data set, right? Uh, will that impact something else, right? How do you change the partitioning strategies, right? Do you have some kind of partitioning strategy? Because in the big data world, you're going to partition your data lake into different partitions and buckets as well. Yes. So coming from the kind of like the, you know, uh, one of the first things that started with this kind of table formats was the Hive table format, if you remember, right, from the mm -hmm. Facebook or the Meta team that released the Hive table format. So Hive table format basically allows allowed you to like take all those files and bring a schema to those files, right? Yeah, it defined a kind of a schema. And because you have a schema and a table, you can query that data using any kind of compute that you like. That's yeah. what enabled Hive. But obviously, like you know, Hive had certain downfalls and like you know uh, disadvantages as well. Uh, for example, when you are doing all those things at scale, 
uh, Netflix's team realized that they were, you know, you know, either losing data, you know, they when they run a compaction job, uh, they had some kind of, uh, you know, zombie data. That means some, some kind of weird data come back. Uh, or, you know, it's really difficult to even manage that kind of like a table format at scale. So Netflix's team, uh, specifically with like, uh, you know, cloud data lakes like S3, they realized that this was a big problem. Mm-hmm. Because the whole problem was that Hive, Hive table format, they, what they did it, all those files, they put them up in a directory. And that directory was actually called as a table. Whereas in now with the new table formats, we are getting rid of the directory and all those different files that you have can directly be managed by a table format like Apache Iceberg. So uh, you had like, if I started from the bottom, you had the data lakes, then you had the file format. And then on top of that, that's where it comes your table format, which is your Apache Iceberg or any kind of table format like Delta Lake or Apache Hoodie. So mm-hmm. the table format basically is in a more simpler term, you are organizing all those files, all those Parquet and Avros and CSVs in the form of a table. So now you have a schema around it. And now any, and because that particular uh, table format is open, and when I say open, it's accessible to any kind of engine. So if you have a streaming use case, you can bring in Flink on top of that. If you have like a distributed ETL case, you can bring Spark. Uh, for ad hoc SQL and PI, you can bring in Dremio and those kind of stuff. So really your data is kind of in a separate tier and it's open. And that's the best part with such an uh, you know, open table format. That's put in a, yeah. <laughs> not at all. I was about to say that's put so well together that uh, glad, I yeah. feel like it is uh, it is very understandable. It is um, it is the evolution basically of high of hive and how to manage a better yes. um, data lakes exactly uh, and um, how to plug uh, easier pieces such as Spark, Flinks. I would assume ML, ML, yeah. ML flow and, and all those, uh, um, those um, projects that you can use to, to then um, um, do whatever you need to do with your data. That's right. uh, super interesting. Um, super interesting and super exciting yeah. also. How does that feel? How does it feel to be working on, on these and, and how is the process of writing a book about one of the key pieces right. of the of the evolution of big data, right? Yeah, I, I I think that's the whole perspective. So for me, like the the best part that worked for me was that I came from that like early days of like Hadoop and warehousing and stuff. So I had that kind of the background, and I was understanding where the industry was kind of heading towards it. And for example, like we were like in my past, like I have used like data warehouses and stuff. And we were always limited. Like, for example, like, okay, we load certain amount of data to the warehouse and it is just stored inside the warehouse, right? You know, I I have no way, like, for example, I'm doing BI and reporting on top of that. It's fine. It works great. It's structured data. So it works really good. But what if I have to deal with like more advanced use cases like machine learning or streaming, right? You know, that's unstructured data and data warehouses. I mean, right now, as of now, uh, I see a couple of data warehouses, they are going towards like, you know, incorporating a machine learning within their warehouse. But to be honest, in reality, how it works out, uh, you know, in, in, and what I have seen in the industry as well, is you basically, if I have to do kind of like some, you know, your data scientists are there and they have to do their, you know, machine learning activities are on that data, you typically export a subset of the data from the warehouse uh, to your data lake. Because your data lake is an object store, it can mm-hmm. really store any kind of data, right? Whether it's structured or unstructured, it doesn't really matter. Right. 
So mm-hmm. how it works is basically you do kind of a, you know, export and copies of the data and you make multiple copies of the data. You know, it's expensive. It's super expensive at scale, as you can imagine, right? And yes. how are you going to even manage that data? For example, there can be problems like data drift uh, and, and it can lead to problems like model drift and stuff in the in your machine learning space as well. So really the whole point is why do you want to make so much copies when you can just be and and the reason you're doing all these copies is because the data is not open as of now right that's why you have to export and all the data so in a warehouse you're limited to that so i kind of saw that from the beginning that what if this data part could be an open part and then we could bring in any kind of compute like you said like in ml flow uh tensor flow whatever it is you bring into this particular data uh you know open data architecture and you can leverage for it your analytical workload so uh that kind of like you know set the background like straight for me and then i was like okay i knew data warehouse data lakes and now with the lake house we have the best of the both world now so <clears throat> really you can have all those capabilities like a data warehouse now but also the scalability and cost perspective that i was talking about with the data lake now hmm. so i think you know even from my applied side so there are two perspectives when writing the book uh, i know as of now so we have a couple of chapters which obviously goes through like the the technical components, right? The architecture of iceberg, right? And how basically it can help data engineers or you know software engineers who are building that particular uh, data platform actually mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. Uh, for example, like debug things, right? For example, if uh, you know iceberg has composed a couple of technical components within itself, so how do you make sure you know uh, you understand those components? You need to understand those components uh, to you know debug and even go de- go in details. Mm-hmm. So we are covering that part in the beginning, and that experience is what we have learned, and you know over the kind of couple of years I've been. Um, you know, focusing on iceberg and trying to implement it myself as well. And those are the experiences that have been uh, we have been gathering towards it. But also we are writing a couple of hands-on, ex- like I said, uh, a couple of hands-on experience and real-world hands-on experience. Like, for example, how can you integrate Apache Flink with Apache Iceberg, right? Uh, how, can you, how can you do things like machine learning with Apache Iceberg and those kind of stuff? Because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there are certain things. For example, like Iceberg is also used as a feature store uh, with SageMaker and AWS SageMaker and those kind of stuff. So that is super interesting. So we want to give some perspectives around the applied side as well, not just the theoretical side. Uh, and that's that's the kind of the experience we want to bring with the book, yeah. So it's it's been a fun, you know, um, uh, from both the ex- aspects, I would say, yeah. That's awesome. Um, there are different ways I would like to go about it. Uh, <laughs> there are so many questions in my mind right now. Yeah, yeah. Recently, we had the Databricks and snowflake summit um, yeah and we know those companies are very um big components of uh, for a lot of architectures uh, nowadays um yes. what is um how does uh, apache iceberg uh, fits uh or collaborate with uh, databricks or snowflake and how does how does um, how could we see it integrated in in the same system, and is that something possible? Can you share maybe uh, a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So I have been obviously following because I'm part of the iceberg community and I want to know about the ecosystem. Uh, because for me, it's not about just the technology. Your technology can be cutting edge, uh, but you still need uh, you know the ecosystem around it for the adoption. Because you as a customer, you might have already your data in your you know, relational database in your data warehouse. Yes. And it might, it might it might be very stupid to say, hey, you know, now everything is new. So you just have to migrate everything to your new environment. That That's not how it works, right? 
So, mm-hmm. so that's the whole point. So now, uh, what I've seen with like Snowflake and Databricks is that so Databricks was hard on like Delta League because you know that's their like that's their own kind of thing, uh, and there was always this confusion between the open source uh, Delta Lake and uh, Databricks like proprietary uh, you know uh, table format Delta Lake. Uh, but now it seemed to be like at parity, you know, uh, now I also, I, I don't know if you followed around the updates, but now they have basically released a new a kind of a table, intermediate table format called Uniform, which basically allows you to take any kind of table format and like use the metadata uh, and then they can do things in their own way. Mm. But again, I haven't, I haven't read the technical implementation part of it. There are not much documentation today. Um, probably we are going to see in the coming years because you know, from an announcement to an implementation, it takes a while. Uh, it's yeah. mostly a POC and stuff, yeah. Yes. So that might be something interesting to see where it goes. Uh, but predominantly, Delta Lake uh, and Databricks have been, like, uh, in conjunction. Uh, whereas from the data warehousing space, now with Snowflake and BigQuery, uh, they are going hard on Apache Iceberg. Uh, and the reason for that is, like I said before, you're, as a customer, you have your data warehouse, like, for any kind of, like, you know, data warehouse, you get all your data in within the particular data warehouse system, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas you can also have use cases where you want data to be in an open format, like I was talking about, right? So now what with this different data warehouse vendor, what they're telling you is that you can basically own your own data and you yes. can have your own control, uh, you know, data lake, right? Mm-hmm. And you can bring in Apache Iceberg on top of that. So now with these vendors like Snowflake, uh, they basically uh, allows you to even store data in an external table format like Iceberg. Uh, and then you can do your analysis around that. And, you know, uh, the whole point is that you're not going to lose on performance aspects. Like the performance is still going to be the same, whether you are storing the data within uh, natively within Snowflake or BigQuery or putting it in our own controlled kind of data environment like Iceberg uh, with like your own data link. So I think mm-hmm. the momentum is that um, ultimately everyone is going to adopt you know this kind of a table format at some point of time uh it's just that now that we have seen this major kind of players uh, like you said uh, these are major players in the market and uh, now that we see kind of that momentum towards like for example at dremio like it's a data lake house platform and we have been adopting iceberg right from the day like you know very beginning so that's the kind of like the push that we have like so we understand like that customer data needs to be in the hand of the customer we should not be controlling that data right we should give that leverage to the customer because ultimately, uh, uh, you know, your use cases can vary, right? Today you are doing BI and reporting and stuff, but maybe in the future you're going to use something like machine learning, right? So in that case, do you want to change the architecture overall? Well, no, that that might be a pretty heavy migration strategy. You mm-hmm. might want to just be able to add a new engine to that already existing architecture, right? So in a way, it's much more simpler if your data is kind of open and you bring different compute towards it rather than going the other way around towards it. Hmm. Makes total sense. Um, <laughs> uh, I like how you, how I, how, I like how you framed um, how, how all this technology maps together. I think right. what, what I'm thinking right now and, and what I was, um, what maybe this is a point that I always ask myself. It feels like with, since big data, we're on a constant path yeah. of evolutions, yeah. of uh, improvements, of better systems, more scalable. Um, it is never... Um, 
slowing down, which is great. Yeah. Um, but I have some curiosity about um, keeping keeping up with the technologies, and I feel like there are different key players here. I think that we can see companies like you mentioned Netflix, for example, which yeah. need to have like the top best. I mean, the data engineering team of Netflix, they're, they're yeah. very famous. Uh, right. They're, they're, but uh, just to name one of those companies where we have like very, very talented people in the tech world and, and they need very, very optimized systems um, to deliver the best products. So here's my question. Um, in the in the evolution, in in the constant uh, right. improvements, uh, like um, in the in the summit, uh, in the Databricks and Softlake summit, we we saw like many improvements and all of that, and then we come back to the customer, and then we could discuss about academic versus um, right. the field. But um, how do you see customers adopting new projects in terms of what do they do so putting in other words i'm curious about like the how long does it take for a project to be implemented and who implements it first and like what does it take for maybe like a big company that have a bit of an outdated system right. to end up implementing it in your in, in their system right right and maybe it's and, and, a big yeah, let me yeah. let me know if it's too. Um... No, it's it, it is it is a huge question. Like in, in general, the decision is huge, right? Obviously, like you know, it's yes. a very important question. Like, and I'm glad you asked it. Like, you know, so like I said in 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 the beginning as well. Like, you know, there is a huge difference between the you know the cutting edge technology and the adoption on the customer side, right? Like you yes. said, uh, very rightfully, there are bigger banks. You know, there are bigger you know telecom giants uh, who are basically. Uh, who basically have been part of a particular system or data architecture for long now, right? And unless and until there is a major reason for like them to upgrade or migrate, uh, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a hard decision to make because because everything is kind of stable. You know your jobs are running fine. You have multiple uh, you know different production application running based on that kind of data architecture. And now that you are talking about these new technologies, does it really make sense to you know for them to migrate to that immediately and stuff? So I guess overall, like for example, like I have been personally involved in a couple of cloud migration strategies in my previous roles as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for example, uh, back in my role uh, in Otis Elevators, it's an elevator company. I was one of the um, data visualization side guy uh, leading click efforts there. Uh, my whole one of the first like job task was to really take all those BI reports from running from an on-premise data warehouse to go to like a cloud environment uh, with like AWS and Azure hmm. and really make sure those reports run on, on a cloud-based environment because we were going to see a lot of customers adopting those reports, right? And dashboards and using them for uh, their decision-making. So the whole point was that we need a scalable system and you know you can only scale if you're going to this kind of cloud-based solutions. But the decision to do that is uh, is kind of a, like a different phases and kind of different shadow migration strategies, actual migration strategies. Mm-hmm. So you you kind of devise that. Obviously, there is a, a huge aspect here, which is kind of the leadership push and the leadership acceptance, right? So you might, as you as an engineer, like I I have I have been very opinionated in the past that okay, we should go and adopt this particular technology and have presented towards uh, you know that technology towards my management. 
but does it really goes to the implementation well it depends you know it really is uh, you know is a, there is a huge cost factor inside that right uh, I'm, I'm not just talking about the monetary cost with the open source solution like iceberg there is technically no monetary cost other you know apart from like service you know the saas based services around that probably yeah. but there is there is this total cost of ownership right so you know you have this thing you have to whether you are a build or buy you know those kind of decisions uh, how much time do you have that engineering effort in your team uh, even if you have the engineering effort how long can you really go and implement that and be able to how soon can you really derive value from that so these decisions are ultimately like all like you know comes down to uh, this kind of different factors like i said leadership is a huge aspect as well uh, where the continuous direction is right you know are are they moving in that same kind of direction uh, as a for example the size of the company also matters right so for example if i'm starting as a very small analytical company uh, or very small analytical team i might not need all the you know advanced use cases like machine learning and streaming today right yes. uh, i can just start with bi and basic ad hoc queries and stuff you know and i give a interface to uh, my users and they can query the data uh, and they can be in a data lake and data warehouse whatever it is uh, so what i mean to say is that your use cases are going to increase day by day and depending on your use case you have to make the decision uh, but that vision is super important like i said so if you are keeping your architecture open like i said you can bring in different different compute engine different different analytical tools towards that data right so you're already setting that foundation strong so i think that is super important and that vision is important and i think it's it's it, it takes a while to really implement something from like uh, the kind of announcement to like kind of that option and everything uh, but i think that that, that that that's where I, i think the whole the point of the leadership and the vision of the company and everything works towards it i have also seen companies who have gone back to be honest like i was just talking to someone the other day uh, and i'm not going to name the company but they are a big like you know company in like canada and they were doing um, a lot of like you know data lake house stuff and now they want to go back to like uh, you know data warehousing kind of stuff because it's been a push from leadership and stuff and you know uh, they have been seeing certain challenges and stuff so it's also the other way around you know it it, also, it all depends on your use cases and everything hmm huh. interesting interesting um yeah. okay so i would like to ask you about data lake um data warehouse delta delta mm-hmm. lake uh, but first of all i would like to come back to something that you mentioned about data bricks uh, and you mentioned that the 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 delta tables correct me if i if i say something wrong but the delta yeah. tables um from data bricks are different than what we call um the delta tables like the open source uh, delta um, um yeah delta tables so could you maybe emphasize and explain a bit uh, uh, uh what there is behind this yes yeah, so over the years like we have had these two different kind of like the, the table format is same it's it's like another table format like iceberg it's called delta lake and it was there was a open source part of it then there was a databricks managed part of it and there mm-hmm. were certain features that were available uh, only in the databricks managed part and there were mm-hmm. certain features we are not available in open source or available in open source So ultimately there was this confusion and uh, but the good thing is that now everything is uh, what I hear is that uh, obviously I don't work in that particular project and I'm not sure of what's going on but I speak with a couple of folks in databricks and what I hear is that now everything is kind of open source so now okay. everything is like delta table like everything is the delta lake um, and then there are there are different different things around it I guess like streaming and delta live tables which is like streaming part of it yes. those kind of thing yeah yeah exactly 
And so, so to put in into place, um, I find that something super interesting with what mm-hmm. you do on a daily basis is that uh, you have a really you're really talking to the people who are implementing the solutions, um, yeah. as it is for maybe for the book or, or for for for. Um, for whatever reason, but you have uh, this is so interesting to like know what's going on in a lot of companies and how they yeah. are reacting to the evolving field. And I feel like this is also very, um, very powerful information to adapt Absolutely. and move um, and move faster, build faster. Um, so, could you, um, from my perspective, Data Lake? Where you can have all kind of uh, all kind of files all in the same place is very interesting. Yes. Uh, so I was like, okay, I understand data warehouse, and then I understand how I connect my tables, I understand all of that, and I understand how. Okay, cool. But now I want to have images, and I want to do deep learning on top of it. And near my images, I want to have my customer data. So I have my I have my data lake and. And I have right. my processes and whatever tool I use on top of that. Okay, so, um, but you've mentioned that some people went for um, data lakes and went back to data warehouse. Uh, right. And then we have those delta tables. Uh, so I have two questions here. I'm mm-hmm. not sure um, how the delta tables are different from a data lake or a data warehouse for uh, first question and my second okay. question is what are the factors that will make me want to have more uh, data lake or more data warehouse or more of um, delta tables right these are so, my innocent questions sorry yeah absolutely and these are the questions that i also get from the community at like you know very frequently as well because these are like we in the data in the end of software industry we love jargons like we we invent <laughs> new we names do. and every uh, yeah every single time so you know it's good to have that kind of distinction in that so Delta Lake is another table format like Iceberg. So technically, there are three table formats now. Uh, I don't know if you heard of Hoodie, Apache Hoodie. There is another table format that came out of Uber's engineering team. Hmm. Uh, there is Apache Iceberg, which came out of Netflix's engineering team. And there is Delta Lake, which came out of De- Databricks, right? Hmm. So these are the d- three different table formats. So you can basically adopt one of these three different table formats. With the data lakes, uh, in general, with the three, three different table formats, like, you know, uh, Apache Iceberg is one of them, uh, Delta Lake is one of them, and Apache Hood is the other one. Uh, so basically, you can really adopt one of these three different table formats for your lake house strategy. You know, that's what, so what, really what brings those kind of like data warehousing and data lake house ability together is the stable format, like any one of them, to be mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. So data lake, like I said, it's basically the storage, your, you know, S3 bucket, your Hadoop file system, whatever it is, that's your data lake, right? Okay. And data warehouses, we have already, you know, understood it. It's like a centralized repository. To me, it's more of an analytical database. That's the most common jargon that I use, like with a data warehouse. Data warehouse is a very nebulous term. So it's more of an analytical database, like OLAP data, OLAPDB, right? So OLAPDB. So, okay. and... All these components that I talked about, right, the storage part, the file format, the table format, the, the compute engines, these all things, they exist in even a data warehouse and even a data lake house. The only difference is that with a data lake house, this file format, this table format is open. So that means it's accessible by all the other compute engines. Whereas with a 
data warehouse, this file and this table format, they already exist in that particular system. It's just that it's not open. It's unified into one single system. It's bundled up into one system, single system. So that is why you need to bring the data into a particular system and only use the compute engine from that particular uh, you know, analytical database. So one of the common example is, for example, if you're using, technically people also use PostgreSQL like for a data warehouse. I don't know if you uh, hear yes. about that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one of the most common thing, like, you know, back in like in the days, it used to be like the thing, like you start with a Postgres like a database and that kind of also gives you some kind of ability. The only difference is that all those kind of like aggregations and stuff, it's, it's going to be very slower in an OLTP rather than our OLAP database. So the hmm. whole point here is that, you know, this data warehouse have this kind of like a centralized repository. This data lake is where you have unstructured and structured any kind of data. So Lakehouse really brings like the best of the both. So you also, like with a data warehouse, you have great data management capabilities like uh, schema evolution, partition evolution, things like compaction, right? Joining data together. Uh, those now can be achievable in a data lake directly without, you know, locking your data into a particular, you know, model. Mm -hmm. That's the whole difference, yeah. Mm. That's super interesting. I think you had a second question. Uh, I think yes, I, I it was it, about yeah. Delta Lake and like Delta tables, Delta Lakes. Right. So, so yeah, like I said, like Delta Lake is one of the table format and Delta Live table is probably one of the streaming part of it. I, I'm not very exactly sure about that. But ultimately, that's another thing that brings like, you know, the, you know that's your low Lakehouse architecture as well. So if you if you understand Databricks, they are a Lakehouse platform as well. Uh, so their table format is predominantly Delta Lake, whereas with other organizations and other Lakehouse platform, it can be like Iceberg or Hoodie and, you know, those kind of stuff. Mm. Right. So Delta Lake is a, a direct competitor of Apache Iceberg, Apache Iceberg. Yeah, in a sense, in a sense, like, yeah, yeah, in a sense, like if you talk about those ecosystem and those kind of, um, you know, uh, people like who are building the services around it, it can be, you know, competition around that. But for people who are, for example, I can talk about big companies like I were, like you said in the beginning, like, you know, I constantly talk about like, for example, Pinterest, Pinterest is a big company that uses mm -hmm. iceberg at a larger scale, like huge scale, like wow. they have like, you know, petabytes of data, you know, and, you know, zettabytes of data. <coughs> so <coughs> it's mostly like, you know, how do you implement? So Iceberg really fits work, like works great for that kind of implementation. Apple mm -hmm. is another company that I constantly like, you know, work with. Apple personally contributes a lot to the Iceberg project, open source project. Uh, so they have been implementing Iceberg at very large scale within their organization. And it really helps them with all this kind of like, you know, faster analytical purposes and, you know, BI and ML and those kind of stuff. So I think that's where, you know, you see Iceberg fit really well. Hmm. How do you feel about, so in a recent episode uh, in the Lex Friedman show, we, right. um, he received Mark Zuckerberg and he talked about the open source approach. Right. We could discuss about threads and all of that, <laughs> which is uh, very <laughs> yeah, fun. Uh, yeah, right. Which is, which right. is very fun to, to discuss that, um, there is this growing and more than ever um, part of the open source community. Yeah. It started, um, I mean, I wouldn't say the open source started in 2009 with Hadoop and all that, but since the beginning, it have been open source. And, and, and all these companies that you mentioned, you mentioned like how Databricks is going to get open source, Twitter is open source, mm, yeah. at Meta they're, they're open sourcing everything. So, 
So how? So my question is, how do you feel about the open source? How do you feel about building open source? And why is it important? And what are the, the some key factors of like uh, the open source in the in the coming years? Yeah, great question. And you know, uh, because like now in the data space, uh, we have been seeing a huge momentum around open source solutions now. I think it's important to touch a bit about certain aspects. So, for example, like you know, I, I touched a bit about the the cost perspective as well. I think that's a very important factor here as well, I, and I'm going to cover that. But in general, uh, I think the debate is that whether you build or you buy, right? A lot of companies now what they're doing is because these open source technologies, they either start in these larger tech companies like Netflix or you know Apple or whatever it is. Yeah. We understand the value because they have been implemented at such a larger scale. You can really learn from those hard like experiences, right? Uh, yes. When you are dealing with such a huge amount of data at such a larger scale, if you as an organization are not Apple's or like Pinterest or you know uh, you know bigger companies, you probably don't have to worry about such a large scale of data at this, at this point of time. But it's also a good experience for you to like gain, learn from that, right? So what we as like a smaller organizations have been doing is that we are trying to okay apple has implemented this and they have certain experiences they have written blogs about it papers about it so we can probably implement the same in our own way right but we might not be such a big engineering team to really build all the solution and services around what apple has done or you know netflix has done right you know i don't have that kind of engineering resources with me so in this case can i look for a vendor or a SaaS solution who already kind of, you know, does this kind of services around, uh, for example, I, let's say Iceberg, right? Iceberg is a common example like in this case. So maybe instead, like for example, for your organization, if you're, if you don't have such kind of engineering resource and money, it might be better option for you to just look for a vendor who already does, you know, services around Iceberg, right? And then, you know, I can speak for my company, like, you know, Dremio is a low-cost platform as well. So mm -hmm. it's super easy to like get started with Iceberg with like Dremio. So for example, you have your data, some of your parquet files in your S3 bucket. You can just use Dremio to like from a like a visual interface and you don't have to really code anything or such. You can just write a simple SQL query or even use the visual interface to create an iceberg table. And all it does for a user is it's just a create table statement. That's it, right? And then you can do all your analyticals on top of that easily, super easily. So mm. what I mean to say is that as a smaller organization or as an organization that don't have the bandwidth to like build your own things just from the like the vanilla open source, mm -hmm. you can look out for these kind of like services around that. And that might be an interesting way to uh, get started because you understand the value of Iceberg, right? You understand the value of that open source solution. So mm -hmm. you want to leverage it. It's just that maybe you don't have the scope to do that in your organization. Mm -hmm. So that is super important to look at. Uh, another important factor, cost, right? Cost, like I said, is a huge factor, right? Uh, with OSS, you don't really pay have to pay anything. Uh, but again, um, there is this total cost of ownership that I mentioned, like you know, things like maintenance and upgrades, right? Hosting it in your, in your own cloud environment or your EKS and those kind of thing. And the infrastructure around it, right? You know, you might not have that kind of uh, infrastructure today to support that kind of uh, open source solution. And, you know, with a SaaS-based solution, all of these things are taken care of by your vendor, right? So you don't really have to worry about it. All you have to do is pay per compute or pay per, you know, licensing model, depending on that model, you have to pay for that. Hmm. So I think that is uh, another important thing. Um, 
another important uh, like aspect which i want to mention just before i you know end this conversation is around uh compatibility and ecosystem i was talking about right and uh, the compatibility part also comes with customization right uh with open source you really have access to the source code right and to me as an engineer like you know the having access to the source code is a huge aspect of it right i can customize it in my own way i can you know understand what that logic is doing and i can turn it to my own company's benefit right i can use it in my own benefit for example for example let's say in iceberg let's say a particular uh, there is a let's say a spark job that's doing uh, some kind of a compaction around like you know you know the big, you know small file problem in the world of big data right how you compact the you know small file into bigger files so maybe the native source code source code doesn't have a let's say uh, optimized code right but if yes. i have access to the source code i can you know optimize it and make it my own uh, faster or in, in my own way so that's the advantage you see with open source solution right uh, but with saas those customization options are going to be limited and even if you put like a feature request like for those vendor it might take a while to implement those feature whereas in open source you just open a pr and your community can work towards implementing the pr yes right awesome Uh, that's great, and this is also give a lot of perspective because this is something I ask a lot. Uh, if I yeah. if I am a startup or if I am a young company and I, right. and like we're at the beginning, like where do I where where do I start building? All right, I want yeah. Power BI's or I want I want some data, but but like right. like do I pay a size? Like how do I cross my different data? At what point exactly. do I really need to connect everything together? So those are tricky questions. Um, but uh, yeah. worth giving a look and uh, SaaS at the beginning is uh, one of the of the interesting answers um yes so um so so thanks a lot for um for sharing all of this i see yeah. that we're we're running uh, uh, around uh, around uh, an hour so so yes. i'll uh, i'll have a few few last questions for you um so The first one is: uh, Do you have any tips for someone in the field today who is just getting started? There is a lot of words we used a lot of technologies. Yeah. So, do you have any tips for someone who is just starting in the field um, to yeah. to do big things? Absolutely. So, if your focus is like roles like data engineering and like you know data platform and stuff, ultimately, like you know, uh, I what I want to think about is like most of the time is like you know. Uh, you hear about this shiny new tools and technologies and stuff uh, you know but the core is you know the ultimately the core like for any kind of like engineering role or analysis analytics role is that you need to be able to understand a business problem and you can solve it using code or or low code right even in today's world like with chat gpt and everything like you know we have seen like a lot of new things come up you don't necessarily need to like spend a lot of amount of time in just probably starting something from scratch you can use low code or you know no code tools as well So the whole point is your core is understanding the business problem. Uh, you need to be able to articulate that problem and solve it using code. And I think, as someone who is newly getting started, I think you keep your focus to like, for example, you need to have understanding of SQL and like you know programming languages like, for example, Python. I think that's good enough. Like you know that that's good enough. But the whole point is that you need to be able to understand the logic and reasoning around it and be able to solve a problem. Uh, with any kind of solution so it doesn't really matter today iceberg is there you know tomorrow there's something else come up it doesn't really matter the core is the foundation and i think you have to focus on the foundation and that's super important for starting out well thanks a lot thanks a lot i have this Absolutely. three little fast questions that i do at the end of the episode uh -huh. um but first of all thanks a lot for coming on the show 
I learned yeah. a lot today. I mean, in every episode, but um, but you sharing your experiences to us, it means a lot. So thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show. And, it was a pleasure. And yeah, of today. course. Of um, course, yeah. Three questions. We mentioned the tips for to grow a career. Uh, mm -hmm. Two more. Uh, how can people reach out or know more about your work? And when is the book coming out? All that kind of things. Yeah, so I'm I'm a social guy. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, Twitter every single day, and now on Threads as well. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so find me out, uh, and I I kind of post around this, uh, you know, these new roles, these new technologies every single day on different platforms. Uh, so feel free to reach out to me for any questions that you have. Uh, the book is actually it's uh, it's on a O'Reilly's early release program. So the best part about that is we can publish the chapters as we write out. So that way we can gather feedback uh, from folks like you. And, you know, that way we can, you know, incorporate and make the book more solid and robust. So four chapters are already out now. I would highly encourage go and like, you know, give them a read and see. It's a very introductory like session and then goes to more meaty part. But I think like, you know, that's the whole point of it. So, you know, uh, the full book should be out somewhere in like next year early-ish. Uh, so, I'm you know, we'll hope, we'll make sure, you know, we align with the timelines and everything. Uh, but yeah, yeah, feel free to reach out to me about any technologies around data engineering or like, you know, iceberg or any kind of things. Yeah. Thanks. So thank you so much for having me, Thomas. You know, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. And last question. Do you have any message for the list of community? It can be personal, yeah, I, professional, anything. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think the whole point is that you keep learning and be curious about tech. I think curiosity is super important. I think, you know, uh, that's what I believe as well. And make sure you try to try out things with your own hands, you know, not just read theoretically, right? You know, when you implement things, you understand them better. Uh, and for people who are just starting out, you know, make sure you have milestone and make sure you celebrate those milestones, uh, you know, when you achieve those, because it's very important to have those short-term goals and not just long-term goals. So I, I do that. I make sure I party after everything I, you know, celebrate or something. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks a lot for these great tips. And I wish you to have a wonderful day. Absolutely. You too. Yeah. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.